As I said, we'll be continuing our series. It's just a, our second week of the series. We'll be running through the end of August on the attributes of God. What's a little frustrating sometimes in a series like this for me is I really love walking through uh, texts in Scripture. I really love walking through the narrative of Scripture. Uh, but some of these lend itself a little more to kind of sharing a, a broader scope and just having some key verses. And that'll be true again this morning. Um, I'll try and be, uh, you know, this is a preacher's promise, of course, but I'll try and be a little more concise this morning, giving time for Myron to come up um, to lead us in communion. Um, our key verse, we could say this morning, is going to be out of Malachi 3.6. So that's, a, that's one verse that's kind of a pivotal verse for us, for our theme this morning. So last week I introduced um, this series uh, on the attributes of God, the, the qualities of God, the characteristics of God, and in which we ask this question, what is God really like? And, and we considered the name that God revealed to Moses, I am who, who I am. And, and some of the things, some of the implications of that name, even though we could go much, much further, it's so vast. Uh, he is, God is the God who is unlike every, and every other uh, man-made concoction, man-made invention of a sort of God. Uh, God, the God of the Bible says all other gods are frauds. There's no other but Him. Uh, he is the God that is eternally self-existent and self-sustaining. There never was a time that He came to be. He always is. He is never, he never finds himself incomplete or in need. He always is complete, self, self-existent and self-sustaining. Now, I pointed out last week that the reality is, is that we'll never really be able to come close to answering the question, what is God really like? Because some of his attributes are such as him being eternal or him being infinite in everything he is, boundless and without limitation. Uh, he's incomprehensible to finite beings like ourselves. But again, we shared last week the beauty of the fact that this God that says he's the one true God of all creation, the one true God that always is, is a God that has made himself known. Not so we can simply know more about him. That is true. But in the context of truly knowing him in relationship. Um, J.I. Packer says, and just so you know, like I'll, I'll probably be quoting J.R. Packer and uh, A.W. Tozer quite a bit through this series. Um, I'll be use, I'm using several resource uh, materials and books, but the book Knowing God by J.R. Packer is just a classic. And then uh, A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy is also just another classic great book. So if you could pick up either of those books as we're going through this, um, I would recommend it. So J.R. Packer and his book Knowing God... Um, and it's a book, which is interesting when you, you, you frame this quote out, um, it's a book that's full of what you'd call theology, of sound theology, the, the knowledge of God, uh, of who God is. Um, but he speaks of the danger of simply trying to know about God, separate from actually knowing God in the relational sense. And he says this, he says, to be preoccupied with getting theological knowledge as an end in itself to approach Bible study with no higher a motive than a desire to know all the answers 
is the direct route to a state of self-satisfied self-deception. It's a really interesting quote, especially from a book so full of theology. To be preoccupied with getting theological knowledge as an end to its, in itself, to approach Bible study with no higher motive than, to, than a desire to know all the answers is a direct route to a state of self-satisfied self-deception. And then he, later he wrote in the, in the same chapter, a little knowledge of God is worth far more than a great deal of knowledge about him. So that was really striking. But of course, to experience God in a relational sense, the scriptures are very clear as you see the path of God's salvation all through scripture, through the Old Testament into the New Testament, that this relational connection is only found now through Jesus. Jesus told Nicodemus, whoever believes in God's son is not condemned. This is right out of John chapter 3. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. That's already the state that we're in, whether we realize it or not. If we reject Jesus, we're actually continuing on a path. We're continuing on a path of rejecting God, standing separated from him, and condemned in that place. But if we turn, this idea of repentance, if we turn to receive Jesus in faith, then we, be, then we come into this place where he becomes truly our savior. He's rescued us from sin and death. We're reconciled to God and free from condemnation. That's a beautiful verse in, in Romans 8, 1, right? That when those who are in Christ Jesus no longer are under condemnation. Paul Little in his book, Know What You Believe, gives this picture, and it's a really simple picture, but I, but I, really, it really, I really liked it, especially with our theme that we'll get into this morning. He says, he, he, he pictures um, walking into a strong, prevailing east wind. Uh, up here, probably t- typically more from the west-northwest, but if, if you're walking into a prevailing wind, if it's a prevailing east wind and it's a, it's a violent east wind, I can be walking directly into the face of it and it would be tenaciously in my face. It would, be, it would be the thing that hinders me. But if I simply turn, then that same wind becomes a wind of support, a wind of motivation at my back. And, and he, he, he likened this to the fact that really in the end, it's not God that has to change, but we who have to change our response to him. This morning, before Myron comes up, we'll take a few minutes to focus on another of God's attributes, and that of his immutability. Anybody know what that means? Immutability. Yeah, unchanging. The, 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 the core word in there is kind of mutation, right? Something that would mutate or change. So immutability versus mutability, immutability means unchanging. So this God who says, who calls himself, I am who I am, is the eternally unchanging God. As I just said, it's not God who has to change direction, it's we who have to change direction. Now this doesn't mean that that God is stoic. Or that he, sometimes we think of something that's unchanging or unmo- unmoving in a sense, unchangeable, we think of something that's very stoic, maybe something that's unemotional or without personality or without responses of compassion. And clearly the Bible shows that that's not the case with God. He is all those things. 
But rather with God, it's that he, has, he never has a need to grow. He never has a need to learn. He never has, he, he's never fluctuating one minutia in his will, in his character, or his word. So that verse in Malachi 3, Malachi 3, 6, this is the Lord speaking. And, and, and again, he, he starts, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. But then, and, but then listen to the conclusion after that. Because he is immutable, he speaks to his people. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. And do you know we can call you descendants of our Old Testament forefathers as well, right? So you can hear that because we are descendants by what? By faith, right? We are descendants of Abraham by faith. So, you, so because God is an unchanging God, you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. James 1.17 a New Testament verse, it's, it, James says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So what are some of the implications of God's immutability? For one, God cannot be improved. God cannot be improved. Talking about cutting grass this morning, right? So that guy is trying to improve, right? Find perfection in his lawn. There's that one blade that needs to be snipped. The other guy is a watchmaker. He's, he's trying to fine-tune. He's trying to work, work out every little thing that needs to be worked out to bring to perfection. But God is a God that does not need to be improved. I'm created as a finite being. I change. You know, it's been said, one of the things that sure we can be sure about in life is change, right? I sometimes, I can change for the positive. I can grow, I can mature, I can learn, and I can change for the negative. My, my body declines. My, my character is too often inconsistent, and at times I regress. The world around me changes, now, there are some things which is kind of neat to think about. There are some things in creation that I think reflect and speak of God, to God's immutability. The idea of the rhythms of, of the seasons, for example. We can always trust that those rhythms are going to come back around. The fact that every day the sun, the sun rises and the sun sets and the orbit of the earth and all these things, we see these consistencies that I think speak of and reflect to God's immutability. But there, there's also this reality with creation that creation, all the, resources are, all the resources of creation are exhaustible. Even our sun, you realize that, right? Like there will be a day that the sun's like, the sun, S-U-N, right, is no more. It's, it's got a timeline. All, the, all, all, of, all of creation is, has exhaustible resources and is really in this process of decay, Contrasting that, the psalmist says in Psalm 102, this is Psalm 102, 25, 26, and 27, in the beginning, speaking to God, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be discarded. 
but you remain the same and your years will never end. And then what's really great is in verse 28, it connects God's people with that context. He says, the children of your servants will live in your presence. Your descendants will be established before you. There are a lot of variables in life, right? A lot of variables. And, and change is, for some people, very unsettling. We, we, don't, we don't often know what everyday circumstances are going to bring, whether things are going to go as planned. Uh, we don't know what, what each day uh, our health will bring. Last night, I, I'm thinking, I'm teaching tomorrow, and as my throat gets sore and my nose gets stuffy, I said, oh, man, you know, everything is prone to change. We don't know what, our, you know what might happen next week with our job. There's just all these variables People are unpredictable. Their moods are unpredictable. Their attitudes are often fickle and dependent on circumstances. I had a dad growing up. And again, this is not to be disparaging to him. I've often said he's matured greatly through his years in Christ. But he was young in the Lord then. I didn't know what dad I was getting when he came home from work. I didn't. Was it going to be an angry dad? Was it going to be a happy dad? He kind of had some trepidation because he, he so often, his mood would change depending on the circumstances, depending on the stress level maybe. Sometimes people's mood change just with the weather. Reliability is frequently erratic. Now, as a follower of Jesus, this concept of change can actually be very good news because we're supposed to be in the process of change. We just went through a series in Romans chapter 12 where we talked about all about the transformed life, how God is looking to transform us. By the Holy Spirit's power, someone who is a perpetual liar can become a truth teller. By the Holy Spirit's power, someone who is prone to anger and prone to violence can, can be brought to a place of peace or even becoming a peacemaker. The immoral can walk in purity. The, the prideful can walk in humility. And one day, immortality, uh, mortality will be swallowed up in immortality, the eternal life of God. So change for we who were destined for corruption can actually be a beautiful word in that context. There's, there's hope for improvement, we can say. There's hope for positive change, especially for the believer under the lordship of Christ, the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. But God does not need to be improved. God can never fall to less than he is, nor can he become better, nor can God become bigger, nor can he become stronger or wiser, nor can God become more just or more loving. Because he is, always has been, is, always will be the infinite expression of all these things. He never has to get up with the times. His truth is always relevant. Isaiah 40, surely, Isaiah 40, verse 7 and 8, surely the people are like grass, right? This idea of quickly turning over, quickly being here today and gone tomorrow. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. So God needs no improvement, we do. So our hope of positive change rests on the one that never changes. It's only by the provision of the Holy Spirit. And his, this, this unchangeable expression of, as Galatians 5 tells us, of love, of joy, 
of peace, of patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's only as we, as we rely on his unchangeableness in all those things that we can then change to a place where we become more like the image of God's son, who, he, who he, the writer of Hebrews tells us is the same what? Yesterday, today, and forever. So secondly, the God who needs no improving is always and forever perfectly consistent. In him, in him there will never be a hint of inconsistency. He will never waver in character, word, or will. He, the Bible tells us that he's not like a man, that he should change his mind. So it's so important for us to not associate with God the things that we associate with mankind. People are vacillating, friends come and go. Someone that you felt was very near and dear to you, very trustworthy one day, may the next day be all too happy to betray you. We've all experienced that. We are prone to break promises. We'll forget that we've made them. How many parents out here have been humbled by the fact when your, parent, when your child comes to you and says, you promised, and you scratch your head like, did I even say that, right? We're prone to break promises. Our affections, our responses are habitually determined by this, this strange concoction of how I'm feeling or what have you done for me lately. For us too often, out of sight literally means out of what? Out of mind. But all these shortcomings are not so with God. He, 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 he contains none of these kind of human foibles. He's perfectly consistent. Psalm 103.17, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. He's perfectly consistent. Every human love that you've ever experienced, and some of you, praise be to God, have experienced some good love. <laughs> some people that have been faithful, but every human love falters. Every, even people that we expect to be very consistent, every once in a while, they'll have a day where you're like, who was that, right? You ever ask, who was that? That's not the guy I know. That's not the, the lady I know. But God is never like that. He's always consistent. R.T. France says that the unchangeable God has, and I love this, placed himself freely under an obligation to love and cherish his people to the end. He has placed himself under that obligation, and in doing that, the covenant God will never be inconsistent in that place, never be inconsistent in his covenant. This is why it's such a, a, a wonderful thing, and, and we can be ever so glad that the covenant love of God is not based on our fluctuating faithfulness, but it's based on his steadfastness. It's based on his choosing to love us and his character and his will. And when his covenant love is based on his choosing all the way through his commitment to Christ that set his face like flint and would not turn to the right or the left until he was at the cross and out of the grave because his choosing will be consistent 
And if he's chosen to love you, he'll never be inconsistent in that love. This is why Paul can say in Romans 8 that he's convinced that there isn't anything in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When God God promises you something in his word, it's not about, well, how have you done today? It's not about, well, how is God feeling today? Maybe it's been a stressful day for him. When he says he'll never leave you or forsake you, there's no vacillating in that, ever. When he says that, when he, that he is faithful to forgive you when you turn to him in repentance, there's no vacillating in that, ever. When he says that he's adopted you as his children, there's no going back on that contract. When you come to Jesus in faith, he comes and he says, now you're part of my family. I've adopted you. He'll never go back on that. That's good news, amen? That's good news. When he says that we have an inheritance waiting for us that will never spoil or fade, that will always be true. When he tells us that he works all things through the good, even the stuff that hurts, even the stuff that we're confused about, even the stuff we're scratching our head about, even the stuff in those moments we're saying, where are you now, God? He promises, he's like, you got to get it. You, all of this stuff, even in your darkest moments, all of it, I'll work out for the good. He's immutable. He has never said anything that he won't be perfectly consistent with. He's never promised you anything that he won't be perfectly consistent to show himself true. So we've seen that God is a God that can, this God that cannot change is one who knows no improvement. Two knows. There you go with English. Knows no improvement. And knows no inconsistency. Thirdly, the unchanging God will not change his course. His plans and will stand forever unchanged. We tend to change direction. We tend to change our mind. Again, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. Sometimes it's how I'm feeling. Sometimes it's just I didn't have enough information. Well, I said I was going to do this thing, but now I realize... But again, God's never short of information. J.A. Packer writes, What God does in time, he planned through, from eternity. And all that he planned in eternity, he carries out in time. Nothing can alter God's determination to follow through. And nothing can alter his power to bring it to be. Job 42.2, and this is one verse that is, there's many verses like this in Scripture. I know, Job says, that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. I don't think of God necessarily strictly in a linear sense. I think that's kind of often our Western thinking. Everything's linear, point to point to point to point. But God is bringing our history down his timeline and his will will not be thwarted. The only asterisk to to this is that God does not change his course unless he's given more than one option, 
as he moves his will from one point to the next. So if you do think of a timeline, God will always bring his will down that course to his destined end. But sometimes, on occasion, there may be more than one option of how to get to what we would say point A or point B. What do I mean in that? Sometimes in the scriptures, we see this God who says very openly, I, the Lord, do not change. I'm not like man that I would change my mind. We see him at times in scripture say he's going to do one thing, and then what? Do another. Okay, what's going on there? When we examine these instances, what we invariably see is that God responds to a shift of human response. And and each instance, whether it's spoken or unspoken, I think what we have to see that each instance, whether it's spoken or unspoken, there is an unless there. Unless. So I will do such and such a thing unless you change your course. Unless you repent, unless you earnestly seek my face in prayer. And like I said, sometimes that unless is spoken, sometimes it's unspoken. The classic example of this is the people of Nineveh, who God sent Jonah, and Jonah didn't want to go. And you find out in the end why he didn't want to go. He goes because they're enemies of Israel. He goes eventually after he's thrown up by some fish on the shoreline, right, after God basically says, you're, you're not running away, you're going to go, you're going to preach, you're going you're to tell this city, this nation, that they're going to be destroyed. But do they end up destroyed? No. The people of Nineveh repent, and then God relents. Now, all he had said is, you're doomed, you're done. But then when they turn and change their response, they turn and change their direction, God relents the calamity of which he had said he would do. Now, what's striking is, this doesn't surprise who? Jonah. It doesn't surprise Jonah. Because he says towards the end of the book, he said, I knew you were a gracious God. He says it's almost in an, it seems like an accusatory tone. I knew you were a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah actually saw his relenting as being perfectly in accordance with who God is. He is that God. But there was an unsaid option. I'm going to bring it down my timeline. You will be destroyed unless you want to get A to B with mercy. Does that make sense? Unless you want to go from A to B with blessing. We can go this way or we can go this way. Now, sometimes we simply don't know when God is holding out more than one option. That's another thing that I think we see in Scripture. Um, one, of the, one of the best uh, examples of that is David when he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant, and God forgives David, but one of the grave consequences of that sin was that this child was going to die. So David does what? What's that? Yeah, he weeps. He goes before the Lord. He fasts. He won't sleep in his bed. He sleeps on the floor. And he just calls out to the Lord and calls out to the Lord. 
But then what happens to the child? The child dies. And he gets up and he cleans himself up. And he starts eating. And his servants are like, what's the deal? Shouldn't you be mourning now, David? But it's interesting, David's response. He, David later explains this to his servants. He says, I thought, who knows? I love that. I mean, it's David. This is what, he says, I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let my child live. Now, why did he think that? Because that graciousness is consistent with God's character. What he didn't know is if there was an unsaid second option of mercy concerning that child. So he petitioned with all his heart. He pled before the Lord until he realized it was not to be. But what a powerful call to continually seek the face of the Lord. God will not be manipulated. His plans will not be thwarted. But he responds to sincere repentance. He responds to sincere petition. This is why James can say the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Because this righteous person, this, this man or this woman that's seeking the Lord, is seeking the Lord's will. Your will be done. James also says, right? Don't, that, that's, the, that's the attitude of our, that should be in our hearts. Say, Lord, your will be done. But also seeking for God's mercy. And at times, I believe, as you look through the scriptures, it's our very prayers that open up the path of mercy within his greater will. What a call to prayer. And at times, God just says, no, we're going from point A to point B, and we don't get it. But he says, keep trusting, because I'm going to work all things out for the good. Either way, his plans will not be stifled. He will move all of history, and is moving all of history. Even though we look around, we think, what a mess. He's moving all of history down the course of his will. And it's up to us whether we stubbornly and in vain walk against it as if walking into this stout prevailing wind or we turn and walk in accordance with it. Maybe we could say the wind of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God, all that he is, his will at our backs pushing us forward. I'm going to close with uh, just a, a couple quick paragraphs from A.W. Tozer, and then I'll invite Myron to come up and lead us in communion. <clears throat> just hear these words. He says, what, what peace it brings to the Christian's heart to realize our Heavenly Father never differs from himself. In coming to him at any time, we need not wonder whether we should find him in a receptive mood. He is always receptive to misery and need, as well as to love and faith. He does not keep office hours or set aside periods when he will see no one. Neither does he change his mind about anything. Today, this moment, he feels towards his creatures, toward babies, toward the sick, the fallen, the sinful, exactly as he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for mankind. 
God never changes moods or cools off in his affections or loses enthusiasm. His attitude towards sin is now the same as it was when he drove out the sinful man from the eastward garden. And his attitude toward the sinner, the same as when he stretched forth his hands and cried, Come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.